Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Delfiaco, the host of Building Local Power and Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. Today I'm here with my ILSR colleague, Sophia Hossein, who leads ILSR's composting work in Baltimore, as well as Denzel Mitchell, who is the Deputy Director of the Baltimore Farm Alliance. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Happy to have you here. Thanks for taking the time. Denzel, could you start us off by just giving us a brief overview of the work that you do with the Baltimore Farm Alliance? What's your mission in the city? Our mission is to build a sustainable community of farmers, food workers, and land-based progressive activists through racial equity and land tenure and ownership lens. The organization was founded by Maya Kosek in uh, 2008 through an OSI fellowship. I was one of the founding members, and we've been working towards technical services, education and support of urban agriculture, teaching, training, collective marketing, community building, and sustainable agriculture, specifically based around building soils in the city since then. And I've been the deputy director since February of this year. Very cool stuff. Sophia, maybe you could talk about ILSR's connections with the Baltimore Farm Alliance and a little bit more about our work in Baltimore. Yeah, so ILSR established a few community composting sites in Baltimore this last year through funding with NRGC and the Rockefeller Foundation. And a couple of those sites are Farm Alliance members. So one of them is Strength to Love Farm, which actually Denzel used to be the farm manager there for many years. And they're in West Baltimore. And we are also working with a couple other demonstration sites in Park Heights. We've got Plantation, which I believe is also a member of the Farm Alliance. And Mm -hmm. Denzel, is Hidden Harvest a member of Farm Alliance as well? Yes, absolutely. There's 19 member organizations throughout the city, 16 farms, three community gardens. And and yes, the three farms that you named are are all members. Awesome. Yeah. So We've been trying to help the farms build capacity to be able to process some of their own organic waste that they're creating on farm. And so we've been working with a three bin system right now, and, and we're exploring some other in-vessel options to put in place later this year. So now that I've grilled you, I'm going to hand it over to you, Sophia, to ask some questions too. Okay, cool. Denzel, I, I want to get a feel for how you got to where you are. I know that you have a strong identity as a farmer and as a land worker. And, you know, prior to your position with the Farm Alliance, you were the farm manager at Strength to Love Farm. And I know also that actually the Farm Alliance now is working a lot on land ownership and community empowerment through land trusts. So I know that Black agricultural land ownership has declined drastically from its peak in the 1920s, where it was about at 14% to now less than 1% as of 2002. Could you expand on the work that you're doing with Baltimore Farm Alliance to build land sovereignty and community land trusts? Wow. 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 That's a lot. Real quick. (laughs) (laughs) Real quick. So yes, I do identify correctly as a farmer and a land worker. More specifically, I identify as a Black farmer and land worker. Even more specifically, I identify as a Black farmer that was born and raised in America's heartland on land that was stolen from the Indigenous folks and then 
quasi giving back to them in the Dawes Act. So I, I, was, I grew up in Oklahoma on land that, as you all well know, was given essentially given away to, to homesteaders and folks that were expand, expanding out west. My family ended up on the Dawes Rolls as Black Creek freedmen. And I didn't realize at the time that that would inform, I didn't realize throughout my childhood and adolescence and even well into my adulthood that that would inform a lot of my work until I got to be an actual grown-up who's now thinking about buying land and buying a home and figuring out where to settle and what place to call home. And so that's kind of been my work. That's That's been central to my thinking in my work since 2008, 2009. And being in the city and realizing that, A, there isn't a whole lot of farmland around here, but let's start farming. Let's start growing food for production. And then that growing developing into this idea of now trying to own some land in this in this system of you know in the system of capitalism you know the, the idea of buying you know borrowing money from a bank you, I mean you guys know all this all this and you know so it was really kind of a icky and painful idea that we weren't really able to realize in Baltimore and in Baltimore County um, because land is so expensive and so my involvement with the Farm Alliance now is really about getting folks access to the land that is here, that is available, that is ours, as Zachary Curtis said so eloquently yesterday in the teaching. If it's public land, it belongs to us because we're citizens. We, you know, we are we are a part of the uh, the populace. We're part of the public, so it's our land. And so, my role now, part of my role in the Farm Alliance, is to help the folks in the organizations that have established stewardship and control of the land that they that they are using that they've they've gotten the opportunity to use for to to produce food for folks in their control for as long as we possibly can so yes we are looking at ways to own the land we are looking at ways to get the land into a, a trust so that it is it is controlled and it cannot be taken away by a developer or by the city when now the city decides all of a sudden that this this land is worth way more money as a parking lot or a store or a condo than it would be to produce food for folks and food makers in this community and in this economy. And under Mario Strauss's leadership in the last three years that the Farm Alliance has kind of shifted its focus that way. And so I came in, in a, at a great time. So I think that was a roundabout way of answering your question. But yeah, that's that's what we're doing. There's some farm, each of our farms is kind of looking at their use of land a little differently. And so it's really unique to what the farm itself, whether it's privately owned or whether it's a program as a part of another nonprofit, what they want to do with the land that they're on. And, you know, we've got also got folks that are, that are coming into the city or coming back into the city and wanting to create economy on a little piece of land. And so what are the ways that they can they can do that? I think that what Bliss Meadows is doing is, is really interesting and intriguing and empowering, you know, in terms of like working with the private landowner, but then also buying some land and buying a home to turn into a community center. There's a couple of organizations that are looking at putting the land into trust. There's also a couple of organizations that have long-term leases with the city. Um, and so really the organization is really just looking to push push the envelope and push the understanding of how a city, you know, an urban center really looks at the uses of land. 
So is a lot of the land right now owned by the city or is it a pretty wide mix of whether it's city owned, privately owned, you know, in some kind of nonprofit ownership model? Right. So most of the land that is being utilized by the farms in our network is owned by the city, either either one of three departments in the city. And so over the years, that has kind of been the, the kind of the first gateway into getting into farming, finding a vacant piece of property, finding out who owns it. And then generally speaking, if it's been the city, it's been fairly easy to kind of set up shop either through an adopt a lot agreement, which is now being phased out. But for a lot of people, especially when I was coming up in 2008, 2009, 2010, you know, just having the ability to kind of use the inefficacies or the, the shortcomings of bureaucracy, you know, we were able to get permission to use a piece of property via an adopt a lot agreement and then just kind of roll that out. And then I think around 2000, well, Department of Planning's Office of Sustainability created the homegrown Baltimore lease leasing program. And so that was a way to get a lease with the city for five years with a two-year right of refusal and then an opportunity to, to re-up that ag- agreement. And so I was a part of that process as an individual in the early years. And then I know Real Food Farm slash Civic Works got a homegrown Baltimore lease and then a now defunct for-profit B Corporation farm model called Big City Farm got got one of those leases, which then kind of morphed into Strength to Love, i.e. Intersection of Change, taking over that lease. Just so that's kind of where things are now. So it just it really just depends. I mean, it it has not been it has not been often that folks with means and resources have been able to come into the city and buy land, you know. But it, that has also happened a few times. Mm-hmm. What role do you see urban farms and gardens playing in combating the racially charged history of redlining and food apartheid in the city? Whew. I mean, it's there's so, 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 so many things. But I mean, the first thing, the most impactful thing, probably the thing that I can, that that is most tangible for me is just really just like changing the narrative and changing the relationship to farming, number one, and to food production, to the importance of agriculture. For me personally, I mean, you know, this doesn't really answer your question, but I know for myself and for my my family and the folks that are in my community and that have kind of been a part of this process since 2008 have really, really been charged by the notion of being able to produce food for yourself, for your family, for your community right here next to you. And it's not this like far off, hard to reach dream that is only attainable through a massive amount of resources, a massive amount of mechanization, and then family that's owned some land. You know, it's, it's, it's attainable through creating this identity or accepting this identity for yourself and then using the land that is available to you. Tons, as we know, there's thousands of vacant lots all over the city, kind of going through that process and tapping into the knowledge of of our elders, the knowledge of our ancestors, the folks that have been in our families that, you know, that that have these tools and resources to be able to do it. So that's one thing, just, just like this new idea that, oh, food grows in the ground. It looks like this. It's not always pretty. <laughs> that the land is, is quite abundant, right? That basic 
knowledge that we don't teach the kids at home. We don't teach it to kids in schools. We don't talk about it when we sit down to the dinner table. We definitely don't talk about it when we sit down to most restaurants. So, you know, this is all brand new. So that's one one thing. That's kind of, for me, the biggest thing. And that was why we kind of got into it. The second piece, though, I think is, you know, the connection of food sovereignty to land control as it relates to the land that I can see that I'm looking at right now. We talk to a lot of people all the time about Black folks having land in the South or Black folks having land out in the Midwest and losing it all these number of ways or Black folks living in Baltimore City in these beautiful, you know, well-kept, concentrated neighborhoods and then certain things happening that's been well-documented now and in hindsight, and now Black folks have left. They've moved to the county. They've moved over here. They've moved over there. And then as a result, the city knocks down four or five blocks of homes that, you know, folks, grandmas and aunties and uncles and daddies and whatever lived in. We are now coming back in the in the aughts, in the, in the 20-teens, and reclaiming some of that land and <clears throat> reestablishing this idea that we are here. Right. That, you know, we are the, the children, we're the descendants of these folks that, that you moved out, that you did wrong, that you did dirty. And we are taking control of the food system and making making ourselves a part of the conversation. Because one of the things is we know that the machine of capital, the machine of government, you know, continues to, to turn on and the inequities and the disparities and the discrimination that have been baked into the these systems are still here. But. Now we've gotten some of the knowledge to address some of that. And we've got some of the courage to stand in front of city council members and mayors and, and, and planners and say, this doesn't work for us. This, this is not the way things are supposed to be. So it's been a long time coming. And I've kind of come to this portion of the party a little late because I'm not from here. So I've really relied on folks that are from Baltimore to inform me and and relied on uh, the literature to inform me because I'm from Oklahoma where the land was expansive and, and sweeping down the plain, as the song says. And uh, it just seemed like there was there was plenty. But then my family, we, we lost ours too. So it's like even when I wanted to farm, when I, when that, when I kind of got the bug and I kind of got infected with this idea of being a farmer, it's like I couldn't go home because my family had lost their land too. We had 600 acres in Oklahoma. So we decided to set roots here and do the work here and really understand, like, this is what's happening to folks in the city. You know, you know so the, the monster looks different, but it's, it's, it's doing the same work. Now we know that the systems that were created are not sustainable, that they're not working, that they're not, that they're not feeding people. So we have to feed ourselves and we have to feed the folks that we love and we have to feed the folks that we're connected to. Ooh, wow. I mean, so powerful. I, I love I love hearing you talk about it. And just to do a quick plug, I know that you said that you are not from here, but that you do love to learn from folks in Baltimore. And I recently watched Baltimore Strange Fruit, which for our listeners who are not familiar, was a documentary that was created by Eric Jackson of the Black Yield Institute in Baltimore. I believe he's from Cherry Hill from South Baltimore. Um, And I wanted maybe, Denzel, you can talk to me a little bit about your relationship with Eric and and creating Baltimore's Strange Fruit. Right on, right on. Eric Jackson is is the homie. He's God body in the flesh. 
I was actually introduced to Eric <laughs> prior prior to his work with Black Yield by my wife, actually. They were working together at the health department. They met as young 90s hip-hop kids who grew up listening to the words of everybody from Chuck D to Karis One to Minister Louis Farrakhan to Sister Soldier to Audrey Lord. My wife came home and was like, yo, you have got to meet this dude. He, the, y'all, would, y'all would love each other. And I'm like, yeah, all right, whatever. But we started working together and I was like, yo, I, I do. I love this dude. <laughs> um, and so fast forward, marriage and kids, we worked together with Mount Pleasant Baptist Church's Freedom School and our babies have, have worked together and played together. And it's, it's about family and liberation and, and all the, the ways that we as people of African descent need and want to be free and all the ways we have to free ourselves and all the ways that we need to break the systems that have caged us. And so, you know, I'm learning a lot from, from Eric. Eric is an organizer and an activist, and I did some, some organizing and activism work in Oklahoma, but here in Baltimore, it's, it's different. The politics are different and the stakes are different, and the stakes are much higher because we've grown now. We've got bills and we've got kids that's got to go to school and got to live in the city. I'm learning, learning a lot from him. I'm not going to sit here and say that I'm an organizer or activist in the same ilk. You know, I grow food. I'm a teacher. I spend my, a lot of my time reading to folks and telling them what to read and then trying to lead by example. That's really my work. But, you know, but Eric came to me early in the days of Black Yield Institute and said he wanted to do this film about his family and his, his, um, his heritage and Baltimore and Cherry Hill and center, center it around food security and food sovereignty. And our, our stories are very, very similar in terms of being raised by powerful women who understood the importance of family and understood the importance of tradition and, under, and understood the importance of food and what you took from that and how, you, how, how that informed your growth and development into uh, fatherhood and into adulthood and into um, being a community member. So my son, my oldest son, who is shameless plug, who is now a film student at NYU, he asked, he actually asked Jossie to kind of help out with the filming because it was a Goucher student and Jossie was really just getting into film, film. And so Eric was like, yo, can Jossie help out with this? And by the way, can you say a few words? So it's just, it's all in the family. So I, I, you know, I, I love Eric. I love his wife, Jar. I love love the babies. Love Black Yield Institute. And so now, come kind of come full circle in that the Farm Alliance and Black Yield Institute are working in concert together in so many ways. We'll link to the Black Yield Institute's website and the video from the post for this uh, podcast episode. So if you go to ILSR.org, you can find the post there, and then all all the links to what we talked about will be there for you. I think this is a good place to take a quick break. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Building Local Power. In every episode of this show, we bring you stories about action taking place in communities across the country. If you enjoyed the insight shared by guests like Denzel, I hope you'll consider heading over to ilsr.org donate to help support our work. 
Beyond making this podcast possible, your donations support all of our work at ILSR. You can help us produce the research and resources necessary to push back against concentrated corporate power and build resilient local communities like we're seeing in Baltimore. Go to ILSR.org donate. Any amount is sincerely appreciated. And now back to my conversation with Sophia Hossein and Denzel Mitchell of the Baltimore Farm Alliance. I love the way that farming in Baltimore really feels like a family ordeal and people call it small tomorrow. Like it's very, there's very close connections and you can get from point A to point B in just a couple minutes. And I like the idea of the way that you talk about farming as a movement of the people to create systems that serve them when there is like this overarching bureaucracy that really doesn't serve them and that where people fall through the cracks and there is no such thing as food security. Um, Could you talk to me about the term food desert versus food apartheid and why we choose food apartheid? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. But I'm just parroting much greater minds and thinkers than myself. There is no such thing as a food desert. We We don't use that term. We rebuke that, as my grandmother would say, because deserts are not man-made. And we know that folks not having enough food, folks being deprived of sound nutrition, healthcare, clean water, is an act of man, not God, not of nature. So this idea that somebody lives in a barren place in the middle of a city with no access to food to feed themselves and their children is not real. Like it doesn't doesn't work that way, right? And so we know the history of Jim Crow and and how that affected our folks. We know the history of redlining in these cities and cutting people off from access. We know the history of planning and its ability to restrict folks' movements, and we know the history of development and its ability to take essential structures, brick and mortar businesses away from families. And we know the history of this extractive predatory capitalism that removes mercantilism from these communities. And so food apartheid is is a system in which that was that's been created to separate, right? That's, you know, that's what the word apartheid means, is separate folks from good, sound nutrition, separate babies from good, sound nutrition. And we see it seep into these neighborhoods that are, that are largely populated by black and brown, working poor folks. And um, the grocery stores that have been removed, the, the food that they're feeding to folks in, in hospice and hospitals and nursing and in the schools is by design, right? And the design is cyclical to keep us sick and destitute and and dependent upon a system that is not designed to help us thrive. And so I can't I can't take credit for that thinking at all because there there was time that I was like I was talking about food deserts too. So it was Karen Washington, a, a powerful sister mama actually out of Brooklyn, New York, who who uh, used the term food apartheid and explained it incredibly well in a article from Gorilla Magazine that I can send to you guys later that you should you should put the link up to. It was paradigm shifting 
And I was like, you know what, she right. This, this is that's absolutely right. You know, and we and the reason why we did what we did was because because of it. I mean, you know, when we moved to Baltimore in 2006, we moved to Bel Air Edison neighborhood. I ain't know nothing about Baltimore outside of the wire and the Orioles. And I never sold drugs and I never played baseball. So we moved to Baltimore because of what was happening in DC. We were living in DC, DC, we wanted to buy a house. And it was 2006. And so, you know, the housing prices in D.C. were astronomical. They were ridiculous. I was teaching. I had three young kids. So we like, oh, let's move to D- let's move to Baltimore. So we moved to Baltimore and we moved to a neighborhood that didn't have a grocery store. Like the grocery store was was a ways away. And at the time, I, you know, I didn't think nothing of it. But I was also thinking about the fact that like, oh, I want to garden again. I want my kids to learn how to ferment and make make kimchi and, and hippie stuff like that and and uh and make pickles and we want to have bees and we want to have chickens it was really kind of universal marriage of time and space and connection that really brought us here but i i think about how challenging it was just for us to get to the grocery store back then that's what food apartheid is it's like it's folks inability to have access to the things that they need. You know, we all need to eat. That's why we farm, right? This is this is why we are so concerned about soil. This is why we are so concerned about small businesses thriving, because we know that's what families need in order to do well and get all the things that they want and the children to get what, what they need and what they want. You know, everybody, they want to just want to be happy. And uh, if you open the fridge and ain't nothing in there, then, you, you know, you're not happy. That's what that's what it was for us. And, and I didn't fully understand that until we really started to travel around Baltimore and, and see how devastating it was. The work that we're doing, that you're doing with Urban Farms now really does serve to be a movement of the people in 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 revolt of this very intentional, systematic oppression of black people in a city that has been black for its entire history you know it's so it's it's yeah it's so very it's so very intentional and I love there's a Malcolm X quote that I love and it's that land is the basis of all revolution and I feel like it there's more to it than that but that's the part that I that rings in my head over and over again and I love that by reclaiming this art that is ancestral and that has been in practice for you know decades and eons we can create a sense of security for ourselves even though the system is designed for us not to to not survive and to not thrive and be well so farming as as revolution is such a powerful powerful concept and it's so amazing to see that in a city like baltimore where food apartheid prevails, that there are these little pockets of green space where you see people growing and cultivating and creating community and and creating these connections to their ancestral roots. I would almost prefer that to a grocery store, you know? It 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 creates so much more community. So to tie it a little bit more closely to the work that we've done together in the past, as we've talked about, about a quarter of the population of Baltimore is food insecure. And as a farmer, I'm sure you know that the the soil is key to growing nutritious food. What role do you see compost playing in seeding sovereignty in our food systems? Right. So 
soil is a foundation, right? I mean, if you talk to a farmer who's really, really about that life, as they say, that's where it starts is with the soil. You talk to a, a black farmer that the basis of our understanding is, is the knowledge and wisdom of George Washington Carver, who told us that it starts with the soil because you can't get anything that you need unless if the soil isn't right. And we know the contributions that George Washington Carver made to modern, sustainable agriculture across this nation. But those of us who, who identify and connect with the heritage of African-Americans understand that George Washington Carver is the, is the founder of that. And, and the soil is where, it's, is where the, the work, our work starts. I mean, that's the first thing first thing that I learned. And so it was, you know, it started very simply with keep making sure that you got worms or looking to make sure you got, if you got worms, you got good soil. That's what, you know, that's what my grandparents used to, used to say. But then as we get more intellectual and academic and we read a little bit more and we get more access to information, we understand that it's not, it's, it's about creating an ecosystem below the ground that we walk on that is going to give us life back. And so you, you have to give life to get life. At the same time, we also know that this society has been designed to have a ton of waste. And how much of that waste can we capture and turn it into something life-giving, right? That is the challenge amongst folks who have been inflicted with so much trauma that is that's the long that's the long work right we are challenged and stay challenged with that to to get back to your your question i mean i think that that's pivotal we know that access to good soil especially access to good soil here in here in the city cities typically have very very poorly managed soil because it gets walked on it gets compacted it has all types of things on it the histories of cities and industry and industry being in cities has polluted much of our soil, and so there's a ton of work to do to bring the soil back. And the one of those practices that's so pivotal is is capturing all the waste that we are creating here in the place that we are, and turning that back into fertility, turning that back into into life. And so composting is important. And we've been composting at home. I've taught my kids to compost since they were little, itty itty bitty. This is just part of what we do. And I try to make sure that, that that's espoused in schools and other folks' homes. Anytime I'm working with kids around food, they're like, we're saving our food scraps. Why are we saving our food scraps to, to build soil? We're saving our food scraps to feed the worms, you know? Yeah, I think it's a long-term educational process. I think the advantage that we have is that there are farms in the city that are employing practices and, and have had the opportunity to get a composting system or a bin system to be able to recycle some of that waste and turn it into black gold to use the farm the, the words of, of Marvin Hagler or to use the words of, of sister Naima Penniman. So that's 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 super important. So I think that even having a three three bin compost system in a in a neighborhood like Sandtown Winchester and then opening up that three bin system to the residents of Sandtown Winchester and reminding them that they can bring their potato peels, they can bring their banana peels, they can bring their carrot scraps 
and turn it into soil. And this is what it looks like at the end. You got this, this blackness here on top, on, on, the, on the soil, and it's growing this, it's growing food for folks in this neighborhood. And so I really feel like we're, we're at the very, very, very beginning of this work. The very beginning, right? This is all brand new. This is all, all this is new conversation for us who are 45 and, and younger. For our listeners who are maybe not as familiar with Baltimore's waste stream, let's go over the landscape of waste. Baltimore sends all of its waste to the Bresco incinerator and then also to a landfill. Incinerators these days have been kind of rebranded as clean energy sources, which they're not, let's be real. Bresco is responsible for $50 million worth of health impacts a year. And in 2016, I believe one of the zip codes in South Baltimore was the most polluted zip code in the country. South Baltimore is home to the incinerator, Bresco incinerator, but also to a medical waste incinerator that accepts medical waste from all over the country. It gets mailed to this incinerator and is burned there. And so that brings me to what are we sending to this incinerator? We're sent 50%, about 49 technically, percent of the waste that's going to our incinerators and to our landfill can absolutely be diverted as organic matter. About 25% is food scraps, 6% is yard waste, and 18% is other compostable matter. Mm. So when we talk about composting in West Baltimore and composting in South Baltimore, we really bring it back to this idea of like composting as an act of resistance because, Mm -hmm. you know, the systems that are in place would have you send it to an incinerator that'll kill you if you live close, close to it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that Denzel, you're right. Like we are at the very beginning of this journey and it takes so much education to, to unlearn what we consider to be trash as actually an incredibly valuable organic resource that we can give back to the earth that feeds us. And, and to quote Marvin Hayes, Marvin always says, feed the soil that feeds you, right? Like we, we expect the earth to give us this fertility, to give us this sustenance, to give us the nutritious food that, that, that keeps us well and keeps us healthy without really giving back to it. And so I love the idea of feeding the soil and giving back to the earth. And as Leah Penniman would say, to treat the earth like a relative rather than a commodity. Yes, yes, yes. So beyond just reducing food waste and, and beyond, you know, feeding the soil and which is huge in and of itself how does community composting and farming contribute to community resilience i mean i think it helps folks to unlearn some really bad practices that have been normalized in our in our societies and in our community that's you know that's the first thing it's like it means like composting should be should, you know, should have, should be second, second nature. Like, you know, how do we reduce the amount of waste instead of this idea of like digging a big hole and filling, filling it up and then capping the hole off and walking away and acting like there's nothing under there or burning it all and creating, you know, this massive soot that covers these cities. It's like, that's, it's like, that should have never even been an idea, but that's what's been normalized. So now we've got to like go back and, and relearn how to do things. But then I think it also brings communities together based on this like new set of ideas and like a new way to look at your relationship to the earth and a new way to look at your relationship to your environment and a new way to look at your 
relationship to atmosphere. I do want to build on what you were just saying, Denzel, and that not only does compost create an alternate composting or, or building that into our food systems, create a circular system where now all of the waste that we're creating can go right back into creating new food for us. It also, in the on the larger scale, works for a community. I mean, composting can sustain two to four times as many jobs as landfilling. And mm. not only that, but by by applying compost to our city soils, which you mentioned are super nutrient deficient, are you know have lost all of their structure, we can we can give back that carbon sequestration ability and kind of try to curb some of the global warming that happens in cities, and also return the nutrients. If 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 the nutrients aren't in our soil, they're not in our food. So you right. know we're we're creating. Right stronger people like physically stronger communities by be, by feeding them out of soil that has been amended with compost and not only that it by by creating more jobs in the composting sector where we can also create dollars in our community and 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 maintain dollars in our community and keep that system circular and sustainable and flowing yeah i mean the thing is like it's like you were saying you know community resilience is is about utilizing what you have in your community and we all know that each community is creating waste or what is seen as waste, right? Like, I'm not going to eat this, the, the peel of this onion, but then what can that be turned into, right? And then if you know that, like, three blocks down the road, there's a, a community garden, there's a, there's a farm, and you support that farm in whatever way you support that farm, even if you're just glad about the fact that this is not a trash covered empty lot that folks are dumping in the back of just like they've turned it into something so you know use the resources that we have to 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 build the entire community all of it it's like not everybody needs to be a farmer but we all need to understand why farming is so important we all need to understand why composting is so important and we all should be composting and stop using stuff that we can't get rid of Okay, so to, to wrap up this conversation, let's do one last very quick question. So like one, one answer from each of you. Do you have a reading or media in general recommendation for listeners? Could be related to this conversation, could not be, it's up to you. Just one. Just one? Just one. <laughs> oh no, so much pressure. Um, not in my neighborhood. The author's skipping me right, right now, so I don't remember, I'm looking on my bookshelf. But anyway, that's that's something I would say everybody should read about the history of redlining and discrimination in Baltimore. I don't know why I can't think of the author's name right now, but that's the title of the book is not in my neighborhood. Thank you. And you should be watching Lovecraft Country. I am watching it. It's very good. It is. It's very good. If I had to pick, I, I know you said one, but I'm actually going to do two. There's a book called Dispossession by Pete Daniel that talks about the historical laws and regulations that have led to this place where Black people have had their land stolen from them. My other recommendation that has been grounding me is Pleasure Activism by Adrienne Marie Brown. And oh, she's wonderful. thank you. Thank you. Mm, I need to read that. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. And she's very heavily influenced by Octavia Butler, who's yes. like the first black, like sci-fi Afrofuturism author, who I also highly recommend. I know there's only one recommendation, but there's three. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both so much for your time. Awesome. I had a great time. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to what we discussed today and even more reading recommendations from Sophia and Denzel by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. We hope you'll also take the opportunity to help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website. Finally, we ask that you let us know how we're doing with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by me, Jess Delviaco, and edited by Drew Birschbach. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Delfiaco, and I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.